3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to the elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation, and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast. The time is 7 o'clock on the dot. And you're in studio with uh, myself, Edwin. Hello, I'm Will. And my name's Rob. Yay! We have new person... New co-host, welcome to the studio, Rob. Thank you, thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. I'm really excited to um, hear what you have cooked up for alternative news, which is something that you'll be you'll be joining us for today. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been listening to the the show for the last little while, so I've been, <laughs> been like, oh, I'm going to be on the studio soon. So it's nice to finally be here. Yeah, yeah, great. And just like quick little thing, what's what's your three CR story? What's what's your what's my three CR mode story? for getting involved for getting here? Oh yeah, how did yeah. you get involved? Um, yeah, well, I was good friends with someone uh, with Anya, who's on the Tuesday Breakfast Show, and hey. I was catching up with her, and she's like, you should get involved. And I was like, yeah, mm. I should. Um, <laughs> then listened to a few shows, and I was like, yeah, I think this is like. Definitely a really cool thing to get involved in. So, nice. A few months later, here I am. Nice. <laughs> you hear that, listeners? You too can get involved. You, you too can get involved. All you need to do is turn up between nine and five weekdays to twenty-one Smith Street, Fitzroy, and say hello. I would like to be on the radio, please. <laughs> <laughs> and then go through a lot of training. And um, did you enjoy? Did, did you enjoy training? Yeah. Learning about some media law. It's actually I'd oh. never really done much about media law but it's really interesting because now that you've done it you kind of read stuff in the news and you're like oh so that's why that happens or that doesn't happen so it's <laughs> kind of like you sort of understand a little bit more about what's happening but yeah no training was great it's mm. uh it's a busy eight weeks but it's, it's a lot of fun fantastic well we've got a wonderfully um kind of packed show coming up for mm-hmm. you uh first uh first as we we're going to have alternative news with mm-hmm. rob's segment but also then at seven thirty, we have our first interview uh will is that with Benedict Hughes? Yeah, that's right. Benedict from the Pollinator Alliance is coming on um, because there's something really important coming up this weekend, guys. Oh, yeah? What's that? World Bee Day. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's coming up on Sunday, and um, it's a day to to recognise that bees are dying at an alarming rate, mm. and um, this has serious implications for all of us, our food security, for nature, um, and sort of... Um, all of everything. The, everything, 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 yeah. bees, man, bees, mm. um, and so bees are the secret, <laughs> yeah. So um, Benedict is going to come on and talk about how we can do our part to um, to help protect Australia's native bees mm. um, and ensure that we have a healthy, healthy and fri- thriving environment. Uh, what's coming up after that? Awesome, yeah. At seven forty-five, we'll be having an interview with Lara from the First Nations Working. Workers Alliance, and they'll just be about the uh, controversial CDP plan, which has pretty much, from the looks of it, been a failure since the start. Um, mm. But Lara will come on to talk a little bit more about why this is such a damaging scheme and kind of, yeah, stuff about that. Mm-hmm. And then at 8 o'clock, we've got... Um, Umesh. Umesh from uh, the Tamil Refugee Council. Some of you folks may have heard 
um, the family of Sri Lankan Tamil asylum seekers um, from Biloela um, mm. in central Queensland. They were pulled out of their home um, in a dawn raid about just oh, well, over a year ago. Yeah. They've been in Im- imprisoned in immigration detention since, and they've lost their high court appeal to um, not be deported. Uh, so that could happen any day now. It seems like, you know, the 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 only option now is um, a ministerial uh, leave to stay. And so, um, yeah, Umesh will be on telling us about both the conditions that they experienced whilst they were in immigration detention, just here in here in Broadmeadows, um, and also what we can do to um, t- to try to uh, avoid this deportation to, back to danger in Sri Lanka mm-hmm. for this family. Absolutely. And we'll be finishing off the show with uh, Susan Harter from the ACF to kind of come and talk about uh, our favourite topic, climate change, <laughs> uh, how it's destroying, how it's eating the world up right now and mm-hmm. how we need to be, you know, doing way more about it. So mm-hmm. that'll be fantastic. Um, so, yeah, we've got environmental rights and refugee rights sounding. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have morning. music and mm. chat and all sorts of things. It's going to be a great show. It's going to be fantastic. Yeah. We'll be back after Nitty Gritty with Alternative News. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're going to have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. One, two, nitty-gritty now, yeah. And that was nitty-gritty signaling that we're going into alternative news. Now, Will reminded me that I didn't actually mention the date. <laughs> Fifteenth of May, can you believe it? I know. Where's the year gone? Yeah, I know. And quick shout out, also big thank you to the show before us, uh, Earth Matters, which mm. starts off our Wednesdays every morning. Mm. Wonderful. Well, jumping into some alternative news. So you know, it's a bit of a climate-centric alternative news today with two stories on Adani, not just one. <laughs> um, so firstly, so yesterday some emails obtained by the ABC have found that the CSIRO had only one afternoon to review and confirm the federal government's approval of Adani's groundwater management plan, which only occurred two days before the federal election was called. So the CSIRO email was quoted saying we have, quote, examined the responses and are careful about not being categoric about the degree these responses satisfy the recommendations. And so the CSIRO was first contacted at lunchtime and then soon after at 4.34pm, a letter was then sent to the Federal Environment Department. So pretty, pretty quick turnaround. Um, and then this was the email that was then used by the Environment Department on the basis, as a basis that the CSIRO has reviewed the groundwater management plan and confirmed that these meet, quote, strict scientific standards. Yeah. Mm. Um, but now on to a second story about Adani Group. Um, but this is actually not about the coal mine in Queensland, but rather about the overall business itself and its operations. So it's actually been found that the Adani Group has signed a $290 million commercial deal with a holding company, which is controlled by the Myanmar Armed Forces. Mm-hmm. And so this is particularly controversial, as in 2018, the UN published a report which advised that no business should form an economic relationship with Myanmar security forces. And so this recommendation stems from an investigation into the allegations of human rights abuses in Myanmar, in particular against the Muslim Rohingya communities. Um, But now Adani Group has been granted permission to develop a container port in Yangon, Myanmar, on land which is owned by Myanmar Armed Forces. And so, as to be expected, there's been much disapproval of Adani Group's decision, um, including by 
Australian human rights lawyer Chris Sadotti, who also co-authored that UN report, and he emphasises that through this project, Australian coal will now be helping fund the operations that the Chatma da, and it will be enriching the generals in Myanmar. Um, then another interesting story, which came out on Monday, um, but I think it's going to be a really interesting one to follow, So, and also on climate change, which is, you know, important issue. Um, and I think this is a really interesting story for anyone who also follows environmental law. So late on Monday, a group of Torres Strait Islanders lodged a complaint against the Australian federal government regarding, uh, with the UN regarding inaction over climate change. So the group argues that the Australian federal government is not taking the adequate steps needed to reduce carbon emissions. And as a result, the Torres Strait Islanders are at risk of rising sea levels, which they argue violates their right to maintain their culture. And so as a result, this is actually the first time the Australian government faces climate change litigation in relation to directly violating human rights. And so I think what's really interesting about this case is that the basis for the complaint is slightly different to previous cases, um, for instance, like regarding coal mines and climate change. So, for example, with the Carmichael coal mine, the federal courts often stated that it was just the emissions were difficult to measure, climate change is caused by various factors, not just coal and so on and so forth. And so as a result, it's kind of been hard to argue that stopping the opening the mine is the, on, on the basis of climate change. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it is so much more so about arguing that Australia just doesn't have sufficient plans and policies just generally. It's not about whether the coal mines are significant or not to affect climate change. Rather, the focus is just that there is no substantial policy. And so regardless of the impact of Australia's emissions on the global scale, And so this kind of like question of scale of impact is sort of removed from the whole debate, which I think will be really interesting to follow. And so, yeah, I think this will be a really interesting one to watch. Mm, Definitely. mm, That's our climate-centric alternative news. Absolutely. Definitely. And I think also with the... um the Adani mine just up in Australia and its approval, its rushed mm. approval just before mm. the election was called. There was um, context also coming out that the environmental minister was, you know, the emails were showing she was under duress, basically, mm. that to lose her job if she didn't approve it. So it's just shady in from every signs. single yeah. aspect mm. of yeah. it. Um, um, I know we had a few environmentalist groups on last week, uh, namely FLAC on last week, Frontline Action Against Coal. It's just crazy what's mm. going on. Mm. Mm. Um, one more thing for alternative news, um, not not so much newspaper news, but something that's worth noting, that uh, today is Change Your ID Day. Mm. Um, so if you're trans and gender diverse, um, today there's a um, a sort of a workshop type event happening down in, um, in North Melbourne. Um, if you want to change um, details on your ID, like your... Um, like your name or your uh, gender identity on things like a driver's license, that sort of thing. There's mm-hmm. um, there's a f- facility for for people to come in and get, um, have some help with that. Uh, it'll be happening down at the stables, or otherwise known as the meat market, at number two Reckon Street, North Melbourne. Uh, and there will be representatives from departments like DFAT, Vic Roads, and BDM um, there, um, as well as lawyers from the LGBTIQ Legal Service, which is part of St Kilda Legal, um, and they'll be down to help you out with things. Um, they can also help you with other issues like fines, um, Centrelink problems and tenancy issues and things like that. So if you, um, if you have some time today, it's a free event that's happening today. It starts at 3.30pm. Um, just again, that's at number two, Reckon Street, North Melbourne, at the Stables Meat Market. Um, so, yeah, maybe head down to that. Um, just, yeah, of course, um, there are representatives from the government there, so just mm. keep that in mind if you wanted to head down. 
Mm. And just a little little update. Um, obviously, on Wednesday breakfast, we've been covering uh, as the year started uh, the introduction of the My Health Gov record. Mm. Um, and we were very standing against it with the idea of you know more information about you becoming accessible yeah. <laughs> online yeah. and that sort of question of data security and all that. Mm. Um, but it was interesting. I was watching the TV the other day, and they've just started up a new campaign saying, "Have you heard about My Health Record? Mm. If you haven't." And you've, you know, or opted out previously. Mm. Here's where you can go to find information. Just subtly, Uh, subtly mm. underpinning that again. (laughs) Which should be followed immediately by another sort of TV spot that says, have you heard about the census of 2016 <laughs> in which people's personal information was leaked to the public? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I found that um, rather mm. amusing and also mm, a little yeah, bit insidious. Yeah. Mm. yeah, so that's about us for alternative news mm. for now. We're just going to go into a song and we'll be right back. So this is Polyman by On Sale. Polyman's just a little, um, oh, a band I first heard in Geelong. So area in the Victoria area. I hope you enjoy it. And you are listening to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio 855am or streaming. Um, head to 3cr.org.au for a full list of our shows and uh, all of the podcasts you can download. The time right now is 7.17, to be precise. And we're going to head into a, uh, a quick recording of a speech that the great Dr. Chelsea Bond gave um, a little while ago at the University of Queensland on her moving over to the School of Humanities. She's talking about a future that she hopes for for a black humanities and what that means um, in the context of Australia's racist um, education institutions. So let's listen and see what she has to say. Thank you. Um, look, I'd like to acknowledge uh, Turrbal and Yagara people as a visitor to this place, as a Manjali woman belonging to the Yugambeh language group of South East Queensland. Um, I'd like to thank Professor Zwicker and Professor Marsden for the opportunity to participate today, um, but also to be able to join the Haas faculty this week. Um, and also uh, welcome my esteemed colleague, Dr David Singh, and my PhD student, Helena Kajlik, who's here today as well. Um, I have a small confession. I've, I've been trained in the health sciences, so I feel very much a visitor to this faculty, um, compounded by the fact that this is also my first academic appointment outside of a distinctly black space. My location here in what is typically referred to as the mainstream is not a sign of my success as a scholar, of having made it. Um, our absence from these spaces is a reflection um, not of our intellectual capabilities, but as a reflection of the humanities, not just here, but across the country in which we are just one of a few in a faculty. Despite the long-standing intellectual interest in the life of the native folk. Now, not surprisingly, my provocation today is a future humanities that is black, the unmitigated kind that Paul Beattie conjures up in the sellout. I'm talking here about black with a capital B, And I speak of a humanity of the lowercase kind. I'm talking here about, uh, I want to argue that it's only through the recognition of the humanities of blackfellas in this place that humanities has a future. So let me tell you about my black ass. (laughs) (laughs) My first appointment here at the University of Queensland was within the ATSIS unit, where I taught into the Indigenous Studies major, which is best described as critical Indigenous studies of the Morton Robertson, Brendan Hockafitu, Chris Anderson, Audra Simpson, Vine Deloria Jr. kind. 
In this role, I also provided a pastoral care role to Indigenous students because the Indigenous scholar in places like this does any and all kinds of indigenising work. One of, most, one of my most important roles was validating for Indigenous students the epistemic violence of Indigenous studies and Indigenous perspectives that they encountered here at this university across almost all faculties, which demanded, as Fanon observed, that they admit the inferiority of their culture and the unreality of our nations. The students that I would typically hand a tissue to or passive smoke with, having fled a lecture theatre or a tutorial, would come from medicine and the humanities, including philosophy, anthropology, political sciences and education. I'm not going to name the staff. Um, but interestingly, it was the students in humanities rather than the medical faculty that would drop out, that would change classes or change their study plan, while the Indigenous med students stuck it out. Now, this was not because medicine was less violent in the knowledge, that it, knowledge claims that it made about Indigenous peoples. It was that students could not see the point of sticking with the courses here because they could not see how it advanced the interests of Indigenous peoples. And worse, that it was actively undermining Indigenous sovereignty intellectually and politically. At least in medicine, one could remedy Indigenous bodies in their state of illness to one of wellness. But anthropology, for instance, refused to see those same bodies in their blackness. Don't get me wrong, health and medical sciences have long insisted that we weren't really human, as has the humanities, um, but it appears committed to this claim that we aren't really Aboriginal. Ironically, particularly those that actually come from around here, in deeming us not really human or not really black, the academy operates as an apparatus of the colonial project, advancing so-called new knowledge about Indigenous peoples as an intellectual alibi for our ongoing dispossession and oppression. Working within an institution that renders one not human and not real certainly is a peculiar sensation as an Indigenous academic, a kind of double consciousness to invoke Du Bois, the black sociologist and founder of modern sociology in the US at the turn of the 20th century, who of course was written out of the founding story and had his intellectual work marginalised, because of course black people are incapable of being knowers. Yet his experience and his articulation of double consciousness reverberates across the globe for black folk and for black fellows. It refers to having to look at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. I come to the Academy as a black fella, not to study Indigenous peoples or to look on in pity. I am here to, not to be an alibi to the colonial project or an assistant to white knowing, a knowing that is founded upon my people's problems or rather my people as problems, whether it's our politics and our suffering or seeking solutions, always doing good but forever getting trapped in those damn gaps. White knowing of black problems that never get solved really is serious whitefella stuff. And for too long it's been the stuff of the humanities. Yet there is a need for the humanities to bring greater conceptual clarity to some real problems that real Aboriginal people experience. Having worked in the health system for some two decades, I can testify to its brutality for blackfellas. In under 12 months, we have witnessed any number of preventable and avoidable deaths of Aboriginal people within the health system, men, women and babies being left to die, deemed attention-seeking in death, 
being denied a clinical assessment upon presenting to emergency, and any number of coronal inquiries that conclude that Aboriginal people in our dying race state are beyond care. Which leads me to ask, where, are, where is the humanity in the health system? And where are the humanities in health, or the health in humanities, particularly when it comes to black people? Given the humanities' concern about problems and solutions, why is there indifference to this? Why aren't the humanities shifting the gaze from the culture of the native folk to the culture of violence amongst colonial institutions, including health and justice systems that brutalise black bodies, regardless of whether or not they speak their native tongue fluently? In all of my years of undergraduate and postgraduate studies in health, I was taught that the solution to Indigenous health improvement was the regulation and surveillance of black bodies, the holy trinity of health promotion, nutrition, physical activity and smoking cessation. I was never given the conceptual tools to understand fully racialised health differences as something socially produced by society and its institutions. So this is why I'm here. I know that it is within humanities that particular knowledges can be brought to bear to ensure our future as Indigenous peoples, not just the future of humanities. In fact, in this place, they are bound up together and so deeply entwined. A future humanities, however, must first reconcile its refusal to see our humanity in the very land in which we became human in. As a blackfellow in this place, despite being a visitor, I know who I am. I know where I come from. And I don't come to this place seeking to have my humanity validated by it. I come to work here to exercise my intellectual sovereignty as an Indigenous person as defined by Professor Lester Rigney and Robert Warrior. Rigney explains Indigenous intellectual sovereignty as a way to recover and invent new Indigenous Australian intellectual traditions, to find contemporary solutions to the world that is ours today. Citing Warrior, sovereignty is defined as the path to freedom, including intellectual emancipation, the strategies of which are to emerge from the experience of Indigenous scholars. I'm just going to get a few more of them. And it's here in this place that I bring my body and my existing body of work to forge and foreground, what can I say, a more authentic uh, Australian health humanities, steeped within an Indigenous framework. An Indigenous health humanities is interdisciplinary research and action that is transformative and takes up resistance as the emancipatory imperative where Indigenous peoples are not victims or problems, but centres Indigenous survival. And Indigenous people as worthy as care, worthy of care, where health is a right that, if denied, is also deserving of justice. An Indigenous health humanities agenda is not exclusively focused on Indigenous health, but it is informed by Indigenous conceptualisations of health and humanities, centering Indigenous voices and methodologies, and brings the criticality of Indigenous studies forged by Indigenous scholars, locally and globally. An Indigenous Health Humanities agenda looks to develop Indigenous assessment methodologies in clinical practice, for instance. It examines Indigenous models of care as best practice approaches to health, not exotic alternatives. It is the space that we carve out a race-critical health research agenda, and this is the time to do so. We have a national Indigenous health policy vision of a health system free of racism, yet for some reason we don't have any substantive critical race scholarship within health humanities to draw upon. Interestingly enough, the humanities have been all too comfortable with culture as a way of explaining Indigenous deficit. And as a blackfellow, I know when they talk of culture in Indigenous knowledge production, it typically masks more than it reveals. An Indigenous health humanities is courageous, as courageous as blackfellows have had to be in the colony. 
It is determined to attend to power and its uneven distribution within the research enterprise itself, not just in the type of knowledges that are produced. It is not distracted or deterred by the tears or intellectual curiosities of non-Indigenous researchers writing their next book about Indigenous problems and solutions. It honours and upholds intellectual warriorship of Indigenous scholars. It does not erase them or demonise them. Australia, like the humanities, has both a black history and a black future. Our humanities as blackfellas is not to be found in another place or another time. It is right here, right now, in fact still here. It is in recognising this lived humanity of blackfellas that the humanities can uncover what it truly is to be human and healthy in this place, in this country, epistemologically and ontologically. Thank you. And you are listening to Wednesday Breakfast. Associate Professor Dr Chelsea Bond is a Mananjali and South Sea Islander woman and Principal Research Fellow at the School of Social Science at the University of Queensland. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Five, four, three, two, one. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. The 3CR Radiothon is fast approaching. And this year, we're asking you to power Radical Radio. That's right. It's with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. 3CR Radiothon 2019, June the 3rd to the 16th. Power Radical Radio. The Fair Go for Pensioners Coalition is holding a free conference on the 10th of July at the Greek Orthodox Church, 23 to 29 Victoria Street, Coburg. The conference will take a look at whether the Aussie fair go still matters, ask why there's a crisis of trust in politicians and institutions and question why public welfare services are increasingly private and costly. We'll also consider what action we can take to build the future we want. Limited places are available and bookings before the 10th of June are essential. Email eventsfgfpvictoria at gmail.com or call 0477 236880 Fair Go for Pensioners Coalition Free Conference 10th of July in Coburg A 3CR supporter And you are listening to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR The time right now is 7.30 so it's time to head into our first interview for the day um, So you folks may have may have heard this in the news surely um, Something really important is coming up this weekend Like dun, I said, dun, dun. I've been making the same joke all morning And it's getting kind of old But uh, this this weekend, really important thing is happening It's World Bee Day Yay! Woo! Yeah, and, and what that means is that we've got uh, Benedict Hughes Who is um, an educator, who is a practical beekeeper All-around bee evangelist And also the director of Pollinator Alliance And we have uh, Benedict on the phone right now To tell us a bit about World Bee Day um, Benedict, you there? Yeah, good morning, Will. How are you? Good morning. Very well, thank you. How are you? 
Yeah, great. Thanks. Very um, excited about the weekend. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. It's going to be a big weekend for you as um as director of Pollinator Alliance. Um, firstly, can you tell us a bit about Pollinator Alliance? What do you folks do? Sure, sure. So we're a not-for-profit group, and our focus is about education, um, so that people understand the importance of all the pollinators, including mm-hmm. honeybees. Um, and we also advocate on behalf of them because um, I guess they're the hidden. Um, part of our food security. People don't know about it. Mm, and they're really great communicators with each other, but they can't really tell us how important they are. Can you tell us about Australia's native bees? How many species are there? Where, where are they concentrated? Yeah, um, there's something like 1,700 species wow. of native bees. And most of you wouldn't realise they're actually solitary. They live by themselves. Mm. Oh. Um, some of them live in the mud. Some of them live in um, wooden little hollows and some of them cut up leaves and make nests with leaves. Mm. And so the, the takeaway there is that they're incredibly diverse. Um, they're not, not exactly like the honeybees that we're familiar with from cartoons and things like that. Uh, but, but something's happening to bees worldwide, it sounds. There's uh, um, problems with breeding, is it, or fungus? What's, what's happening to, to bees that's causing um, die-offs? Look, unfortunately, it's not just one thing. No. Um, there's actually multiple effects um, on our pollinator populations. So obviously climate change is a big one. Um, mm. People mightn't realise that climate change is affecting when the flowers flower, mm. and so therefore um, the food may not be available when the, the bees can forage for it. Mm. Um, and also um, things like pesticides, obviously. So big pesticides will... Um, not just kill the bugs you don't want, like spiders, but it also gets all our pollinators. Mm. Um, and then habitat loss. So, you know, all our, in our cities particularly, um, there's not many gardens left. Mm. And so it's really up to um, everyday people to really do something about the, the die-off of bees, not just in fighting the climate emergency, but also in short-term solutions such as building Bee Hotels, that's part of the, the program on, on World Bee Day. Can you tell us about um, uh, about the activities that are happening on Sunday? Yeah, great. Um, so on Sunday, we'll have face painting for the kids. Um, we'll have a live beehive with a glass window so you can see what's going on, but safely. Mm. Um, and then we'll have Katrina from Buzz and Dig, and uh, she's an expert in native bee hotels, and she'll be demonstrating how you build a bee hotel to give that habitat for the bees. And uh, we'll also have some available giveaways too. Yeah, awesome. So just just to be clear, though, the idea of a bee hotel is that it's some sort of infrastructure that you, a human being, set up that attracts bees to it so that they can set up a colony. Is that right? Yeah, well, these are, these are solitary bees, so mm. they nest by themselves. Ah, of course. And so what we're doing is we're making a little home with some habitat because the problem is um, a lot of gardens are very neat and tidy, and uh, sometimes the, the habitat that they need is actually a bit messy. So we're creating an artificial space for them to um, nest in and, and raise their young. Mm. Now, on a, on a sort of national scale, we can understand that it's important um, that bees are around. They are pollinators, and so they help um, native plants flower and, and propagate, and same with our, our, um, our farming industries and that sort of thing. Um, but for for individuals, if you have a garden that doesn't have any bees in it, what what do you lose out on? Um, so the reason I became a beekeeper was because I love gardening and making my own veggies, that sort of stuff. 
and without bees, my, my garden was not as prolific as it is. Mm. But as soon as I got a beehive, all of a sudden, you know, so many more plums on the plum tree, um, so many more pumpkins, that sort of stuff, because we, we don't realise that one out of every three bites of food needs pollinators. Mm. Wow, okay. Um, and so, so if, your, if your garden isn't doing really well, it's possibly because you're not making um, a comfortable enough environment for bees to come in and do their important work. Is that right? Well, maybe there aren't any... Um, it might be the neighbour, the neighbourhood. Mm. So maybe there aren't any um, beekeepers nearby or maybe there aren't any native bees um, nesting nearby. The other challenge we've had, of course, is the drought. And so a lot of these um, bees, whether it's native or European, they need water. So if you could put a little dish of water out with some stones in it, the bees can come along, land on the stones and have a drink. Um, and the birds, of course, would love that too. Mm. Okay. Now, can you tell us a bit more about the, the work that Pollinator Alliance does? You, you work in education. Um, what, what kind of communities do you go into and how do, how do people sort of react when they hear, that, hear how important bees are? Uh, well, my favourite part is going to schools. So we're developing a curriculum at the moment, um, extending that out to 50 schools in Melbourne. Um, that's a bit of a pilot project. Um, and we go in to give the kids the experience of understanding pollinators, particularly the European honeybee. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, we'll also do adult education. So we'll have a series of workshops and events. And we also have a, a space where people can come and build and learn about um, bees. We're based in the city of Darabin. Um, at the Melbourne Innovation Centre. Mm. And even cities need bees. We need to bring them closer into the cities to to help uh, our sort of na- natural biodiversity in the city. Um, can you tell us about any projects in the city where, where people are doing exactly what, what you're um, proposing on, on Sunday, that, the, that they should be sort of building hives? Is it, is it a business thing? Are local community groups doing that? There are lots of great groups doing... Um, you know, urban farming, so it might be um, just a community garden and that sort of thing. And um, aligned with that, beekeeping goes so well. Um, and then commercially, yeah, there's, there's certainly people who have a business um, supplying bees in the city. Hi, Benedict. This is just Edwin. Um I know with the introduction of the flow hive and kind of the, the mass uh, hysteria around that, bees suddenly became this really almost famous kind of trendy thing to have. Um, (laughs) Do you think that we've seen a a die down in the awareness around bees and do you think we should have kind of, yeah, a bit of a revival in that? Um, Yeah, hi, Adrian. Um, Look, we we have had a renaissance over the last 10 years and in Victoria there's some 7,000 registered beekeepers Mm -hmm. um, and that's up from about... 4,000 a few years ago. So a lot more people are are registering and producing their own honey at home. Um, So, yeah, we're definitely seeing a resurgence. Fantastic. Uh, Yeah, it's great. There's also some terrific clubs out there. So um, places like Theories Bee Bee Group, um, the Wood End Bee Friendly Society, and uh, (laughs) even the Victorian Apriest Association. So there's there's plenty of places where you can get education as an adult um, alongside what we do. And you can get education as an adult or as a child this Sunday. Yeah. Um, it's going to be happening, World Bee Day with the Pollinator Alliance is happening down at Alfington Farmers Market. That's number two, Wingrove Street in Alfington. 
Uh, that's this Sunday from 9am to 1pm. Uh, Benedict, can I ask you how people can keep up with information around Pollinator Alliance? Uh, we do have a website, so um, pollinator-alliance.org.au and uh, most of our program, I forgot to say, is um, we were very fortunate. We were funded by the state government last year in the Pick My Project. Uh, so a lot of what we're doing is um, supported by that. Fantastic. I've been speaking to Benedict Hughes, who wrote The Practical Beekeeper and also the director of Pollinator Alliance. Benedict, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. See you. And that was our first interview. We're going off to a song, and then we will be right back. Now, I think we played this um, artist last week. Her name is Stab, and she's amazing. So <laughs> here's another song, and we'll be back at about 7.45-ish. Yeah. You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast. Just a quick correction. Benedict didn't write the book The Practical Beekeeper, but he is The Practical Beekeeper, and you can find out more about him at thepracticalbeekeeper.com.au. Yeah, and we're going to go into our next interview. Um, up next, we have Lara Watson the, from the Australian Council of Trade Unions, and her role is the Indigenous Officer. She'll be on to talk about the implications of the CDP. Before we get into the interview, uh, the CDP is the community... Community Development Program. Um, but for more information, we'll get Lara on the phone now. Good morning, Lara. Good morning. Good morning. So starting back in 2015, um, CDP is a kind of welfare program, which seems to have been a failure from the start. Could you kind of give us a bit more? Absolutely. Um, so it is a Work for the Dog program, and it has some clear differences as to job active. Mm-hmm. And because this is only rolled out in remote communities where the population of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is around the 90%, mm-hmm. for us we, we feel it's completely racist and it's extremely punitive. So um, on CDP it's compulsory. They had to work uh, 25 days, up uh, 25 days, 25 hours <laughs> a week. Yeah. Um, Job active was only 15 hours. And what we're seeing is CDP workers put into full-time positions within their community. So communities that have very few opportunities for employment is even less now with the program of CDP because they're being filled by CDP workers and they're not being paid a wage. So they're not actually considered workers. Yeah, and do correct me if I'm wrong, but the because it is a welfare system that supposedly uh, pays the dole for required work, people aren't declared as workers, so they don't uh, they're not entitled to similar like worker rights and unions and worker protections. Is that correct? Absolutely. Um, we've already had two incidences of injury doing an activity. Um, we also have a young fellow over. Mulan, who asked the safety equipment and the job service provider said to him, we're not obligated to provide it. And when he said, well, I'm not doing the job, he was then threatened with a breach of payment. And that breach, they've got a a three-strike rule. So basically, if they miss an activity or they don't do something on that activity, they get breached $54, so that comes out of their pay. The second breach is over 100 Now, if they get to that third breach... They get no support money, nothing come in for up to eight weeks. 
And that's just horrifying because I've, I've got the statistic here and it's only $11.60 per hour that these people are being paid for their work. I mean, a suspension of that pay would just have horrible implications, wouldn't it? Yeah, it does. Um, we've seen the letters that have come in from Centrelink with people that have had, say, sorry business or cultural reasons why they couldn't attend an activity. Mm-hmm. And instead of being... You know, you get breached, you haven't turned up for an activity or you ran late, we'll take that money out this fortnight. They actually get hit six months of breaches in a, at a time. So they might not reach the breaches of eight weeks, but mm. they are finding that they are still going without money for that long anyway because they take the money out. So it's extremely punitive. We've had some really horror stories happen in community mm. and it's the program is starving out our remote communities. Definitely. And we've talked about here at 3CR about uh, coercive kind of premises within welfare systems and this idea of being punished by a system that's supposed to be protecting you. Uh, what are the consequences of this punishment system where you, you've talked about the strikes and stuff like that? The, not only the, the economical cost, but like the psychological cost of having a system that, you know, kind of punishes you for needing help or for, for needing work. Absolutely, and that's how people are feeling in communities, mm. that they're being punished for where they live and who they are. Mm. You know, we've got communities, um, if you get one or two people that are being breached at the same time and, you know, low income, the community rallies around them, there's less food, there's less things happening. We've got young ones that are getting, you know, booked and put into lockup because they're stealing food because they're hungry. Mm. But this is the implications of this program and the responses of the kind of um government have been just absolutely shocking i know i was reading a comment by nigel scullion saying that um you know we haven't had these concerns raised with us and they're totally you know wrong that's very vague paraphrasing but how do you feel in response to that you know all i can do is shake my head we've had closed doors from the liberals Mm. They heard everything through the Senate inquiry. So it's just not us as the First Nation Workers Alliance raising these issues with government. Mm -hmm. You had police that were there in the Senate inquiry. You had Centrelink workers that were there in the the inquiry. So they have heard the implications. They've heard how it is starving out communities. Mm. They know that it's punitive, and yet they turn around and say it's working and that 6,000 people have got jobs. Well, 6,000 people have not got jobs on this program because they consider a CDP worker, if they get employed um, into a 26-week program with a private enterprise through that CDP, that's a full-time job. Mm. But at the end of those 26 weeks, they're back on CDP and the business that actually put them off for 26 weeks, get $7,500 incentive payment, which is more than what the CDP participant received. Mm. And uh, just an, another statistic, so just to kind of build with this this image that we're creating, but um, the Australian Institute said the scheme has helped fewer than one in five people into getting into an ongoing job and fewer than one in ten who actually remain in that job for six months or more. So this is just such an impractical application uh, for four workers. Absolutely. And it is expensive. The administration mm. costs around CDP alone around $360 million. So for every dollar a participant gets, it costs $0.70 cents to operate. You know, just lost my train of thought then. 
<laughs> no problem. Yeah, so I suppose um, coming up to this, the election, uh, the CDP has been raised as a rather controversial scheme that's been ineffective since the beginning. Um, and both uh, Labour and the Greens, as you, as you have mentioned, have come out against the CDP, saying that they will scrap it. Um, yep. What alternatives do we need to see come out of this? There's been a few key elements that we've raised um, and CDP workers have raised around this program. You know, they they like the old system under Labor or CDEP because they were getting training that would actually lead to employment. Um, you know, this current program, we haven't come across anyone that says they've got a job through it. Mm. Um, we have come across a couple of people that have found work themselves but are then still having to go back and do CDP so that they can then put that on their book which we just went, what? It's crazy. It is crazy. And I suppose um, I only heard about this topic a few weeks ago, and I've been looking around, and whilst there's a lot of critique out there about CDP, it's just not something that our mainstream is covering or or platforming. Why is this being so silenced or removed? I mean, this is a huge workers' abuses happening right in this country. How have we not heard about this? Well, we find mainstream media is very um, conservative and very right-wing, so we don't actually get a lot of publicity around these issues within mainstream media. Um, We've had a really good run through ABC. They've been fantastic in covering this program, and they've been out into communities and talking to CDP workers themselves and getting those stories on hand. And, you know, what, what we see is, you get your, your top hat, send someone out to remote communities. They go back and say, this is what needs to happen. But mm. they haven't actually talked to community. And one of the things that um, Labor have committed to mm. is they want, they want to look at the old ATSIC boundaries. So they want to be able to talk with communities on a range of issues, but let them have self-determination around the programs that are run throughout their community. Because what we know is it's not one size fits all, mm. and our communities are very different and require, you know, different opportunities. And they're also looking at investing into jobs that can be done on country, like the Rangers program. And just touching on that kind of uh, localized solutions, uh, what would this, what would like a welfare system look like for different communities to kind of, as you said, kind of uh, tailor itself to the community it's working for? Yeah. Um, well, any kind of work for the doll program, mm-hmm. you know, if people are doing work, and it's regardless of whether it's job active or CDP, if they're doing work that we consider a wage job anywhere else in the country, then they should be paid a wage for it. Mm. So that's number one. If they're in employment, in a, in a position that is considered a wage job, they should be paid the appropriate wage and workplace conditions around that employment. Also, you know, communities, if they've got self-determination, they've got control of an employment program, they are getting in the trainers that we need. So having a a look at the apprenticeships and the traineeships, I think, is a good start. Back in the 70s, um, in remote communities, you could actually get an apprenticeship. So we're coming across fully qualified builders now that are on CDP and can't get a job. Mm -hmm. Um, But if we can bring back... You know, those apprenticeships that our communities have got builders, they've got electricians, they've got plumbers. 
you know, they're not waiting for anything that breaks down in their home. Mm. You know, we've got some people waiting longer than 12 months to get a toilet fixed. It's ridiculous. But if they've got someone with those skills in their community, then they can do the job there and then. So really having a look at what jobs are in communities. Mm -hmm. Many that we've been into, there is a lot of fly-in, fly-out workers. And we just shake our heads. It's like, you know, there's employment opportunities here. Why are they going outside the community? Definitely, definitely. Um, I've been talking to Laura from the Australian Council of Trade Unions, uh, who's their Indigenous officer. Now, before we go, um, I first heard about the story on First Nations uh, Workers Alliance. And I know coming up to the election that they're having a campaign currently where they have people take a photo next to I vote to end CDP. Um, yes. Just coming up to this, why do you think this is so important? Well, I'm in Cooktown now, so um, I've been driving around the last two days between Hopevale and Cooktown and getting our people that are, in, are enrolled to the pre-poll here. Mm. So what we find is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that are enrolled to vote, they have some real barriers that they need to um, get over for them to be able to vote, and one is transport. So if they don't have a way of getting to the poll, they don't vote. Mm. Also, it's a short time frame in remote communities around the mobile polling. So it might be, you know, mobile polling comes into their community on one day, two hours, and then that's it. So we need our people to vote to NCDP, not only for their community, but more broadly as mm. well. And all our FNWA supporters are voting to NCDP. So we've campaigned really hard in the last two years to highlight this issue, particularly more broadly in Australia. You know, we've spent the last probably two months looking at enrolling to vote and why people don't vote and sort of empowering people that they've got the power to change government. And now we're at the stage where it's like, let's just get in and vote and change this government. Definitely. Well, thank you so much, Lara, for coming on today. It's been fantastic talking to you about this issue that definitely needs way more recognition. Um, Yeah, thank you very much. Cheers. Have a good day. You too. And the time is currently 7.58. We're going to have a couple of stings and then jump straight into our 8 o'clock weather update and hopefully interview. Hi, this is Katie from Little Birdie and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. We need your help to support public radio and your local music scene. Did you know volunteering contributes to a happier life? Want to know what you can do to make a difference in your local community of Whittlesea? Whittlesea Community Connections hold a volunteer information session every month. It is a friendly session where you get to meet others and be linked to not-for-profit organisations. Contact Michelle from Whittlesea Community Connections on 94016630 or visit our website www.whittleseacc.org.au to find out more. A 3CR supporter. QR Code is an LGBTIQA plus health podcast made by queers. Across eight episodes, hear us engaging with our communities discussing diverse and intersecting topics. 
on In Your Face on the last Friday of every month. Or download from 3cr.org.au forward slash QR code. And follow us on Facebook at QR code 3CR, funded by the City of Yarra. Indigenous people in Australia and the Pacific have borne the brunt of nuclear testing. And this was not done unconsciously. We found documents in the British archives saying that, yes, there is uh, certain hazards, but only to primitive peoples, those that don't wear clothes and don't wash, unlike us British. So the sort of racism inherent in this whole operation was known and understood from the beginning that these were the casualties of a larger imperial policy and that they were able to bear the brunt because there were very small populations and didn't have much political voice. And as we fast forward to today, we see that same thing. 3CR, keeping you informed about Australia's nuclear past and present. At such a time, it's important to have a voice like 3CR, steady, constant, sane and committed to a nuclear-free Australia. You are listening to Wednesday Breakfast, 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM and at 3cr.org.au. Time right now is 8 AM. It's time for another interview. Uh, so, folks, if you have been listening to the news and following um, Australia's shocking treatment of refugees and asylum seekers, you may be familiar with the story of Nadesh and Priya, um, two Tamil asylum seekers um, and their, f- uh, their two young daughters, Tarnika, uh, Tarunika and Kopika, um, who were in a dawn raid um, more than a year ago, pulled out of their home in Biloela, central Queensland, and sent to immigration detention, where they've been ever since. Uh, they've been going through the courts, uh, trying to fight their deportation order, and um, just uh, yesterday they had their um, application to appeal to the High Court uh, denied, to talk a bit more about this, we have Umesh, who is a spokesperson for the Tamil Refugee Council online. Umesh, are you there? Uh, yes, I'm here. Good morning, Umesh. Thank you for joining us on 3CR Community Radio. Um, so to get straight into it, um, Nadesh and Priya claim involvement with the Liberation Tamil t- uh, Tigers of Tamil Elam, otherwise known as the Tamil Tigers, um, uh, and that is the basis on which they may be uh, discriminated against discriminated against by the Sri Lankan government if they were to be refouled there. Um, can you tell us a bit more about their case? Why why would they face danger if they were to be sent back to Sri Lanka? Well, um, if you go go back um, a decade now, uh, it's a decade since the end of the war, mm. um, and, and in 2002 there was a peace process between the government and the um, the Tamil Tigers who who held effective control over the northeast, um, so they actually had administration and 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 uh, you know set up law courts, um, educational facilities, and various things. So so many people um, had some connection to the Tamil Tigers. Uh, not all of them were um, fighters. Um, um, but some of them were just involved in civilian roles. Um, but since the end of the war, um, the military, the Sri Lankan military, has has uh, basically occupied the Tamil areas, and the estimates uh, are something like one soldier to every six civilians um, in that in those areas. And various human rights groups, for example, have written that. Uh, women's insecurity has increased since the end of the war, 
because of this largely male, singular Buddhist majority uh, security force that's stationed there. Um, and then also the military is heavily involved in civilian activities and even, for example, controls a significant number of the preschools in the northern province, for example. Mm. Now, Australia has a, a very poor record when it comes to refouling that is sending um, asylum seekers back to danger, and we've done that a couple of times with um, Tamils who um, have been associated with the, uh, the Tamil Tigers or who otherwise faced uh, discrimination from the Sri Lankan government. What has happened to people that we've deported back to Sri Lanka? Do we have any information on that? Well, uh, the government doesn't. Uh, appear to keep any track of what happens to these people, but um, in a few cases, uh, the people have been harassed by security forces, and there are reports in the UK uh, by Group Freedom from Torture uh, where people have been sent back uh, after being denied asylum, subsequently been tortured, and then managed to escape again. Um, so there are these reports. Um, there are also ongoing reports of abductions and tortures. Um, there's a group called International Truth and Justice Project, which has probably put up the most reports on this subject, basically detailing what's happened since 2015 when a new government got elected, saying that actually things haven't changed much. Hmm. Now, earlier in the show, um, I, I said that the, um, the family's application to stop um, their appeal um, to, to halt their uh, mm-hmm. deportation has been denied, and that's actually incorrect. It was that they were denied leave to file an appeal to the High Court, is yeah. what I've been, read, um, mm-hmm. been reading. Uh, does this signal the end of legal options to, st- to halt their deportation? There are there are possibly some other avenues um, which are being looked into, um, but essentially, yeah, that that that's been reported in the media that the court has has uh, sort of made this decision about deportation, but actually the the case is about whether or not the Department of Immigration uh, or Department of Home Affairs followed the correct process in making the original decision. So it isn't. It isn't about the merits of their claim. Mm. It's just about whether that process has been followed. And while while that um, process is in play, uh, the government can't deport, uh, you know, or shouldn't deport people. Um, so that's so that's the so now that that obstacle to deportation has gone. Um, so potentially, if there's no other legal uh, options the government could deport them. Mm. Now, um, Nadesh Priya, Tonunka and Kopika were part of the community up in Biloela in central Queensland. In fact, the two children, um, the two youngest, uh, the two young children were born in Australia. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nadesh worked in a meatworks, uh, so he was a worker, had a job. Um, They lived in a a house that they were renting. Um, So it it sounds like very much they were integrated into the community. Why um, does the Tamil Refugee Council think that the government was so eager to pull them out of their community and to, to deport them? Yeah, so, so in this case, um, it, was, it was a one day after Priya's bridging visa expired uh, that they were taken away. Uh, in other cases, um, you know, pe- people are living in the community without bridging visas 
it often takes a long time to actually get a bridging visa, and even if you apply within uh, within the time, you might not be granted it for a long time. So it seems completely arbitrary as to who who gets thrown into de- detention and who doesn't. Um, so I can't really explain what the logic is because it doesn't seem there is there is a good uh, there is a great logic to it. There's a lack of consistency. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Um, and so, so the deportation at this point could happen any time. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Potentially. Potentially. Mm. Now the family's being held in Melbourne Immigration Transit Accommodation, is what it's called, otherwise known as MITRE. That's up in mm-hmm. Broadmeadows. Uh, there have been reports of uh, of poor treatment of of children and general poor health services available to people who are interned in MITRE. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about those reports? Yeah, so uh, I mean, the go- the government has been saying for a while that there are no children in detention, which is clearly false, given given Theronica uh, and Kopika who have been in detention for more than a year, and the medical reports have been saying that they are suffering because of that um, and it's a, it's not a healthy environment for uh, for children to be in in, a, in a, a deprived environment and actually I think for the first time they were allowed to go to a play group uh, supervised by circo guards um, yeah and, and um, yeah there are, there are also reports of Poor, um, poor provision of uh, health services. And in the in the case of Taranika, the youngest, um, who's yeah. just two years old, uh, she's been uh, seen by the media to have black teeth, um, yeah. and this is a result of poor nutrition and lack of a- lack of access to dental care. Mm. Um, is this a uh, an experience shared by many people in Mita, or is this a um, this specific to this family? What what's going on there? Um. Yes, yeah, so, so there have been quite a few reports and complaints by by detainees uh, or people held there um, about the medical care. There's, there's another case uh, recently, a Tamil uh, asylum seeker um, who's actually been in detention for 10 years, um, just got diagnosed with cancer, um, and he's he's actually he was he was found to be a refugee. Um, and got a negative ACO security clearance, uh, which got subsequently got lifted, but they haven't released him. And, he, and his mental health uh, and physical health is, is deteriorating in detention. Uh, and there's, there was a report in Greenleaf Weekly about that in more detail, about his health conditions um, suffering because of the lack of health care he's getting in, in detention. Mm. Now, Umesh, um, I... Just might ask you, um, in in the case of Nadesh Priya, Tarunika, and Kopika, uh, we've uh, you, you suggest that um, all legal options um, in terms of halting the deportation have ended. Uh, what is the Tamil Refugee Council asking people to do now? Uh, yeah, so the uh, Tamil Refugee Council and the Home to Bilo campaign um, is now asking people to call their local MPs and ask their local MPs to ask the Immigration Minister uh, to exercise his discretionary power to uh, let them let them stay. Um, and in, rec- in recent weeks, we've seen a number of cases where the Minister has exercised that power um, and allowed a number of families to stay in Australia 
um, and the minister has has wide, uh, broad ranging powers to to act in these cases. So it's basically in his is his hands uh, the fate of this family. That's right. David Coleman, who is the federal member for banks and the Minister for Immigration, Citizenship and Multicultural Affairs, has the power to, to halt this deportation and doesn't have to provide, um, legally doesn't have to provide reasons for doing so. Um, Home to Billow have actually put up the, um, um, David Coleman's phone number as well, um, so you can contact him directly. Uh, and the number that's been given is 0262777770 um, or 029771. Three four zero zero. I've been speaking to Umesh, who is a representative of the Tamil Refugee Council. Uh, Umesh, thank you so much for joining us today on Wednesday Breakfast. Thanks a lot. You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast. Uh, we'll be right back after a few community announcements. We Need to Pay the Rent is a fundraiser for warriors of the Aboriginal resistance featuring the Pretty Littles, Worst Nurse, Ute Root, No Sister, Face Face and a heap more. Come join us on Kulin Nation land to give back. It's well overdue. We need to pay the rent. Saturday, May the 18th at the Tote from 4pm. Tickets $20. Available from the Tote website, thetotehotel.com. Free or discounted tickets for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Contact organisers online to arrange. A 3CR supporter. Bay Ray from Dead Kennedys. You're listening to Community Radio 3CR 855kHz on your AM dial. Have an orgasm for Christ. My name is Ian Ham, and I'm the chair of the Healing Foundation's Stolen Generations Reference Group. At three weeks of age, I was separated from my birth family. And even though they lived just 50 kilometres away, I never knew they existed. I never met my mum, and it pains me to this day. There are thousands of Aboriginal people just like me, and our stories have never been heard. These stories form the basis of Australia's first Stolen Generations resource kit for schools. To download the kit, go to healingfoundation.org.au. A 3CR supporter. In December 2017, Tanya Day, proud Yorta Yorta woman and much-loved member of the Aboriginal community, was travelling by train to Melbourne. When V-Line staff found her asleep, they called Castlemaine Police and she was removed from the train and charged with public drunkenness. Tanya died 17 days later as a result of head injuries sustained while in custody. This would never have happened had the recommendations of the 2001 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody been implemented. Tanya Day's family is calling for the crime of public drunkenness to be abolished and for the implementation of genuine community health alternatives to incarceration. Please add your support by signing the petition at 3CR Reception, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, or online by entering Tanya Day Petition into your browser. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. 
We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. And you're listening to 3CR. We're going into our next interview and we have Susan Harter from the Australian Conservation Foundation in studio. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. No problem. Now, we've got you in to talk about um, the crisis that's currently going on. We faced the crisis yesterday. We're facing the crisis today and we will be facing the crisis tomorrow. This is obviously climate change. Can you just tell us where we're at, basically? Yeah, absolutely. Look, this is a climate crisis. Mm. We've been seeing um, evidence of that throughout, well, the last decade, but I think people are really, really waking up to the fact that we are facing an existential crisis from climate change. We saw a UN report come out in October last year, that 1.5 degree report, um, and I think the wake-up call there was, wow, this is a critical decade. We are seeing, we are moving into uncharted territory in terms of what we're doing to our planet. Um, everything from species destruction to the extreme heat that we're facing to coastal inundate, inundation, um, the loss of our entire coral reefs across the planet mm. um, if we go over that 1.5 degree, degree threshold. So pretty much everything we care about from our livelihoods to our food security um, to our insect populations, everything is being impacted by climate change. So I think coming in, you know, obviously we have a federal election this weekend and this is a climate election. Mm. And that's one of the reasons this is a climate election because people are starting to realize that we are feeling climate damage here, now, this is happening. I mean, if you think about just the last year alone, record-breaking heat. In fact, it was another heat record after years of heat records, but we also saw these horrific scenes like the Murray-Darling River system where over a million fish died and we're told, hey, that's not the end of this. We saw beautiful primeval forests in Tasmania, too wet to burn, being wiped out by raging fires. These are forests, we are talking thousand-year-old trees that we have lost that we will never see in our lifetimes. These will not regenerate. We saw most of the eastern Huge swaths of land in, in eastern Australia, you know, devastated by the worst droughts in a century. So all of those things, you know, adding up along with these really devastating reports and people are going, wow. Um, something is happening and this is actually becoming very scary. And then they reflect on our political situation where Australia is absolutely a global laggard when it comes to climate mm, policy. Definitely. So how do all these things come together? And again, they're coming together because we're facing an election. Yeah, definitely. And coming up to the policy that's kind of addressing climate change, we've seen a huge clear divide uh, between the fact that one side really pretends it's not really happening and the other side starting to address it. And then you've got some people who are actually moving with climate policy. We need to go as extreme as possible with our climate policy. Is that correct? Absolutely. So the Australian Conservation Foundation did a scorecard. Um, yep. <laughs> we're an independent, nonpartisan organization. So we really look at the detail. We don't care about the party. We care about the issues. Yep. So we looked at 50 different really critical indicators um, mm -hmm. in terms of how the parties are measuring up on climate change, clean energy, and nature protection. And what we found was that the coalition really was failing. They mm -hmm. got four out of 100 um, percent. And, you know, if you're a student, you get four out of 100. You've, you've pretty flatly failed. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the pretty labor, yeah, that's pretty bad, right? Okay. So, so that's 
basically unacceptable. The Labour Party got 56, so they made it over the line. They're mm. doing okay, much better, you know, obviously much better. They have a way to go, but we're like, all right, um, that's at least something to work with. That, that's that's okay. Um, we need to push for much better, greater, greater ambition. The Greens got 99%. So, look, they, they did. They nailed it. Um, they put out some really strong positions and some strong policies. Excellent, excellent. And just talking about the fact that this is a climate election and we've seen so much gravitas towards that, so many Australians putting up their hands saying, not only do I believe in climate change, but we need immediate action. Um, We've seen this huge coming together and this huge solidarity. We have, and that's the exciting thing. Mm. It really is. So we've been running a climate election campaign, and just from our from. Australian Conservation Foundation's experience. So we have 108,000 voters in Australia that Mm -hmm. have signed a voter pledge saying, I will use my vote to vote for candidates that will, you know, that will stop the Adani coal mine, Mm -hmm. stop burning coal, and support a shift to 100% renewable energy. That's a lot of people. We've also seen unbelievable numbers of people from across the community volunteer their time. You know, these are busy working people with families, Mm -hmm. young people that have said, sure, look, this is so important. This is a climate crisis. I will put time into phone banking, knocking on doors, coming out on polling day to pass out. So we're seeing this massive response from the community. Um, and, and it's also coming out in polling. You know, the Lowy poll that's been done since 2006, Australians said that climate change is the most significant threat to our vital interests over the next decade. These are really big, big, steps. Yeah, yeah, big steps um, and, and a real strong view that we're seeing come mm. from um, Australians. So I guess my only fear with this is that um, we're preaching to the already converted. Obviously, here at 3CR, we have a huge environmental angle. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of naysayers out there in Australia who are kind of, you know, either climate change, they recognize climate change is a thing, but it's not a thing until tomorrow. Okay. So they're not pushing for it or they're just flat out adamant against it. How are we campaigning to the, those who are opposed to us, to this message? Yeah, that's a really, really good question because you're right. I mean, people have a lot of daily concerns, Mm. um, you know, paying their bills, getting their kids to school. And it is hard to look at this big sort of existential thing and go, wow, um, you know, how do I even get my head around that? Yeah, definitely. So and I and I think, you know, talking to people on their terms for us, it's been about conversations. So we've set out a goal of having a million conversations. And that's been really important because sometimes you have a chat with somebody who hasn't been thinking about climate change. But Mm. when you just talk about sort of what it's doing, um, what it's doing here and now to our, you know, our families and our and the future. Um, when you look at those kids, that, that tens of thousands of kids across Australia and, and you know, across the world, probably millions, that came out and, and striked mm. um, saying, hey, you know, this is about our future. This is about a safe future. So um, I really do think it's, it's about talking to people on, on their terms. Um, we don't need to expect everyone to just go, wow, okay, you know, I get it. We need to drop everything and and deal with climate change. But there's a lot we can do. And I think a really important starting point is to get strong policies in place so that Mm -hmm. as a nation, Australia is really stepping up, um, not just in terms of what we do domestically, but we can play a really important leadership role internationally. We need international leadership. Uh, We're seeing Pacific Islanders meeting today in Fiji with the UN Secretary General in our region. Mm -hmm. He's making this really strong call out for for climate action because Mm -hmm. these countries are going underwater. 
water. And we saw our own Torres Strait Islander people come out on Monday saying, we're having to sue our government yeah. because you're not taking care of our future. These are, these are our people, you know. So, again, speaking to people on terms that just say, wow, here's what's happening. And we have choices. So let's make the right choices. Definitely, definitely. And I think within this, because it's such a, you know, the world's on fire. Mm. <laughs> we need to mm. all come together. We need to break it away from being a generational debate or a, a people debate or a certain, you know, individuals debate. And we kind of have seen that. I mean, you mentioned mm. the student strike. We've also had discussions around the new green plan in Australia, uh, Friends of the Earth taking shelter court, Extinction Rebellion have been very active, the anti Dani movement, there's so many movements that have come out, and I think that's such a strong kind of solidarity. Do you think there's power in the movement that we shall see kind of increase in this coming year? Absolutely. I am so excited by, by those things. These are people going out and standing for, you know, putting their themselves out on the streets and, and calling for action. Everything from, like you say, the Extinction Rebellion in the UK. We just saw them pass a climate emergency declaration. Mm, so we have seen, you know, these really strong pro- protests. But the Stop Adani movement has been amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's been a really important aspect of this campaign, of this election election campaign. And I think um, politicians from all persuasions have had to take a hard look at their positions. Now, we haven't gotten all the right commitments, but Mm. they certainly are realizing the numbers of people that care about these issues. And yeah, I do think that that people, it's people power that's genuinely going to make the difference. Definitely. Well, coming up to facing this crisis kind of day by day, um, what do you think of the, and, and the election, what do you think of the three main points kind of come out of this? We need conversations change and kind of, yeah, well, what would you say your three points? Yeah, that's right. I would say it, it does start with, with people. Um, so those conversations are really, really important mm-hmm. um, so that people do understand the, the crisis that we're facing and then do push for political change. So that's the first thing. And then, you know, yes, political change. So we need, you know, politicians that are actually going to step up yeah. um, and do the right thing here in this country and also being will, willing to push internationally. And then, yes, movement. So as we sort of all all get together, um, the strength of, of people pushing politics is going to be really, really important. Fantastic. Well, it's been fantastic to have you come on. Um, just stressing again, this is a climate election. We're faced with a serious crisis here. I'm, for one, very frightened. <laughs> I mentioned we're having, a, we're having a, an election party on Saturday, and it could either end in tears or <laughs> in joy. So it's a scary time, but as you said, it's a very hopeful time. That's right. And I hope that people do think about climate change when they vote on Saturday. And if you haven't um, signed our pledge, hop on the ACF website and sign a voter pledge. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. We're going to play uh, one or two community announcements. Then Rob and I will be back to wrap up the show. One moment. On March 16, the Sintani region of Jayapura in West Papua was hit by massive flooding and landslides, killing at least 89 people, with more than 6,000 people evacuated from their home. 74 people are missing and 159 have been injured. This disaster is the result of torrential rain coupled with devastations of the mountains. Also poor waste management polluting and clogging waterways, leading to flash flooding and mudslides. At this time, West Papuan people need your help more than ever. Help us reach our goal 
to raise $10,000 to provide emergency supplies, food, first aid, nappies, baby food and milk formula. All money raised will go directly to Yayasan Abdi Budaya Nusantara, a foundation facilitating the evacuation camp in Sentani, West Papua. Donate online at https chaforgslash flood relief for West Papua. West Papuan people need you. It's time to help and don't make them feel alone. And you're listening to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Uh, it is 8.27, time for the end of the show, but let's quickly get into the weather. We're going to look at a top of 17, partly cloudy today. Uh, there's a slight chance of a light shower in the east this morning, so as you're driving in, you might see a little bit of water falling onto your, your dashboard. But apart from that, not your dashboard, you've got a window there. What's that called? What's the, the window at the front of a car called? Uh, windscreen. windscreen. Windscreen, thank you. Ding, this ding, is what ding. happens when you're on a microphone <laughs> and you have to say a thing, but you don't have it written down. Uh, so, yeah, top of 17. It was quite balmy when I left the house this mm, morning, though. too bad. Mm. It was calm. It was chill. Good show. Good show. So yeah. we started off really nicely with um, Rob's first alternative news segment. Woo! Indeed. Fantastic to have you on the show. We're very happy to have you. Very <laughs> um, And then we jumped in straight with uh, Professor Chelsea. That is correct, Doc, uh, Dr. Chelsea Bond at the University of Queensland talking about her hopes for a future of a black, black humanities. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Chelsea Bond, fantastic. Follow her on Twitter. Definitely. Um, and then we had an interview with Benedict from Pollinator Alliance talking about World Bee Day. It's <laughs> coming up on Sunday. Um, and we'll put the details on our webpage at 3cr.org.au slash Wednesday hyphen breakfast. Uh, what was the next interview? We had Lara from the Australian Council of Trade Unions come and talk about CDP. CDP is something I woke up to like a few weeks ago, which is terrible. Ugh. It is terrible. It is. It is. Definitely go out, find your education mm. about it, and hopefully if, if you support it, if you don't support it, vote against CDP because it's hurting a lot of people's lives. Mm. Though, again, that's up to you. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then we spoke to Umesh from the Tamil Refugee Council who was telling us about the recent denial of ap- the right to apply uh, mm. for, no, the denial of appeal against deportation for Nadesh Priya and their two young children who are um, maybe sent back to danger in Sri Lanka. Um, and if you want to tell your local representative um, what you think about Australia's asylum seeker policies, um, that's what the Tamil Refugee Council is asking everyone to do. Definitely. And we finished off with Susan Harder talking about how this is climate change is imminent, <laughs> climate <laughs> crisis is current, and we have to do something about it. Um, so talking about, yeah, solidarity in the environmental movement at the moment. So finishing off the show, Will, what are you grateful for this week? I'm grateful for BB cream. No one can tell that I'm wearing it and I look good. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Rob, anything going on? I'm just grateful to be here, to be honest. I think it's fitting for the first show that uh, I'm just <laughs> grateful to be with you guys. So. Fantastic. Oh, I'm grateful for Mother's Day, uh, for actual Mother's Day. I love my mum, so I'm going to give her a shout-out. Uh, not for the consumerist rubbish that seems to be going no. on with buying your mum a diamond ring. Mm. Ugh. Ugh. Anyway, with that <laughs> ugh, we enter you into, we usher you into Wednesday on the 15th of May. Have a lovely Wednesday, guys. Next up, stick together. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377. 
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.